0: Well, John chapter 21 is our sermon passage today. We're finishing up the Gospel of John, a fact which some, a day some thought would never come as we began this once upon a time long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. We began a series through the Gospel of John. We've taken a couple of little hiatuses and explored other um, mini-series along the way. But we're finishing up today, John 21, verses 15 through 25. As I mentioned, there are Bibles there in the, uh, underneath the chairs in front of you, somewhere there. And um, many of you have Bible apps as well. I have titled this message, A Restored Relationship with Christ, and hence the way that I've prayed in some respects um, along the way. But I'll ask you, if you're able to stand... As we read together, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word. and We believe, God, that it is every jot and tittle of it, inspired by you, written for our good. And we open it with the expectation that by your spirit, you make it come to life to us, that you penetrate our hearts with power and truth, that you show us what we need to see of ourselves and then you show us more clearly what's true of yourself and your grace toward us. And so as we bring all of our, all of our needs, Lord, all that you know we need to hear and be challenged and changed by, we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant, to your people, for your glory. God, I ask as always that you'd move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated while I take this sip of water. Well, most of us have had times when we were maybe dreading our next interaction with a, with a certain person. Uh, we, 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 were, we were just not looking forward to seeing this person because of the conversation that we knew would have to come up when we did. Um, so it may be, for example, a family member. There may have been something over the course of the year. There may be long history with a family member, but maybe there was like, you know, just an email exchange among family and there was something that got a little... Uh, just a little ugly or tense or whatever, and now you're going to see them at Thanksgiving, for instance. That's totally fictional, at least as far as I know, but that may be your story. But it's not so much, in other words, seeing the person as it is, the conversation that uh, maybe you're going to confront there. It may be a a sort of situation at work where um, there was a mistake, an error of some sort, a just a performance concern that you knew you had to answer for, own up to, or whatever, but you, you really wanted to try to avoid it as long as you could. may even try to sort of walk the other direction to the bathroom so you didn't have to go by your boss's office or, you know, just things of that sort. Just not looking forward to that next interaction, hoping you didn't run into that person on the elevator. Or at the grocery store or something where then you would have to have that conversation. Most of you probably know that sort of experience of one sort or another. Hope I don't see him. Don't want to have to have that conversation. Well, I sort of wonder if this conversation between Jesus and Peter felt it all that way. Now, he obviously was not dreading seeing Jesus. He had already seen him after the resurrection twice, And he was elated to see him on this occasion. Do you remember that last week when Jesus uh, called to him from the shore? They realized it was the Lord, and Peter jumped out of the boat in a very Peter kind of way uh, to to try to get to the shore faster. It's funny because the way that reads, it seems like he didn't really make it there much faster than the boat did. Anyway, he could have stayed dry and gotten there in the same schedule, but that was a very Peter way of going about it. But he was elated to see him, but... They had not had this conversation yet. This conversation meaning they had not had a, a um, sort of pointed conversation after Peter's denial of Jesus. is sort of the elephant in the room. You know, that issue where, um, where Peter has just ingloriously denied Jesus three times... And he hasn't really, as far as we know, kind of answered for that yet. But you can imagine that that just had to raise some questions in his mind, maybe the minds of some of the other disciples. Like, first of all, was he really committed to Jesus? Or was that in you know, a, a defining moment that would sort of mark his decision to go elsewhere? Had he disqualified himself from service as an apostle? Or especially as a leader among the apostles? Had he disqualified himself? And all all of that is brought into view in this encounter. And and what's also brought into, into view is the fact that you and I, Really all of us know on some level um, what it is to need, to be in need of a restored relationship with Jesus. I say all of us know it on some level because that is the human birthright that we are born separated from God and in, in, not in relationship with him. And that, that breach has to be uh, repaired by the grace of God through Jesus um, in that uh, kind of initial way, we have to come to relationship with God through Jesus initially. So, we all know something about the need for uh, a restored relationship in that respect. But if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, we know it on a different level, too, don't we? What it is to wander as I prayed, what it is to just have kind of wayward hearts for a season. Maybe a short season. We know what it is to really love other things besides the Lord. And we can keep that concealed from almost everybody else. But we know it and so does he. And so we know the need of the sort of breach that that causes in the relationship. How we can be quite distant. From him, that our mouths are near to him, but our hearts are far off. We know something, in other words, of the need for a restored relationship in a personal way. And some of us are praying in that way for other loved ones, as I just prayed during my prayer. Well, we'll we'll, we'll spend our time uh, on that subject. I did want to point out because we're really just going to focus on uh, the initial part of that interaction for most of our time, but. Uh, I did want to point out, this chapter winds down with a sort of postscript. You've read it before, many of you, and you maybe caught it as we were reading along. Sort of a postscript or a a footnote addressing the deaths of Peter and the beloved disciple, whom uh, is presumably John, by the way, and there are reasons why uh, many think that's the case. Verse 24 in particular, where John says... um, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. When he speaks of the beloved disciple, and he doesn't call him by name. He says, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. That I, the one who am writing these things, am the beloved disciple that I'm speaking of. And so that's one of the reasons we think he's speaking of John. But anyway, uh, it speaks here about the deaths of Peter and John. So Jesus prophesied there. Uh, that, G, that Peter would be martyred. I mean, that's a little bit of a veiled sort of reference to that, that you dressed yourself and, uh, and so on when you were young. But then when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you and so forth. He's going to be martyred. Uh, it's probably a picture of crucifixion. That's certainly what church tradition, uh, how church tradition says that he died. But he prophesied his death. And then Peter looks back at John and says Jesus, to Jesus, what about him? And Jesus said, well, if if he remains till I return, what's that to you? You follow me. And uh, it, it, it says that a rumor had circulated. So John is writing this sort of postscript about a rumor had circulated about him that he was not going to die. This was first century misinformation. And I wonder if in the first century... Jesus didn't change anybody's mind who believed the misinformation um, than, uh, than is the case today. But in any case, uh, there were people who believed that, J- that John was not going to die. And he clarifies that just by saying, no, Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die or that the, this t- beloved disciple wasn't going to die. But only that if, I, if he remains until Jesus comes back, what's that to you? So he's really clearing, clearing up this, uh, this rumor, this misunderstanding. I just wanted to uh, point that out and address that in case that was a point of confusion, but I don't want to linger there. I want to focus our attention on the heart of the exchange here, between Jesus and Peter, because there is the, the love question that he asks, and then there is this Jesus reinstatement of Peter. In fact, in most modern well modern translations, I scanned a variety of them, and the, the headings that translators have written into that the text of Scripture usually fall under one of those headings. What this section is about is either uh, the the love question or Jesus' uh, reinstatement of Peter or restoration of Peter. And so uh, from that, I, I want us just to reflect on the fact that our relationship with Christ, really at any point in our relationship with Christ, will always be marked by Number one, our insufficient love for him. And number two, his all-sufficient grace toward us. Our insufficient love for him and his all-sufficient grace toward us. Hopefully I'll address both of those succinctly, but I want to look first at just our insufficient love for him. I say that because, you know, Peter's not so different than we are. And the question he asks Peter is is not any less penetrating, as I said, if you read the newsletter article this week. He asked this love question three times, and there's much made about, uh, if you've studied this or read anything about this before, much is made about the use of different Greek words for love here, agape and phileo, and um, some suggest that that, you know, has some bearing on what the passage uh, means. Again, I'm not really going to uh, go in that, into that except to say I just, I, I'm of the opinion that John just uses uh, variation in, the, in his word choices. He does that um, elsewhere in his gospel. And so he's just saying, Jesus is asking him repeatedly, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But The first time he asks me, do you love me more than these? Did you catch that? As we were reading it, have you ever pondered that? Do you love me more than these? Well, these what? Right? What did he mean by that? There's really three possibilities. Number one, do you love me more than these men love me? Number two, do you love me more than you love these men? Or number three, do you love me more than you love these things? So having just come in, in from a fishing trip, um, surrounded by boat and nets and the catch of fish that Jesus just graciously gave them. Do you love me more than these things that represent, you know, your vocation, your previous vocation as a fisherman? Really those those three possibilities, and we We don't know which of the three it is. I love the uncertainty of that fact, though, because it sort of forces us to consider the question on every level, right? I mean, does this question, when you read every time you come to the end of John 21, does that question poke you a little bit to think about? He's not only asking Peter, but let me entertain the question myself. And on all three of those levels, uh, do I think that I love the Lord more than other Christians love the Lord? Or, in other words, do I, do I have in me any sense of an air of, uh, uh, of spiritual uh, superiority? You know, Peter did have a little bit of that. He was real, like, he was, he was a little proud of himself, right? He was a little overconfident at times. But do I think in any, in any respect that I, my love for Christ is right on mark and even superior to others? Are there people whom I love more than I love the Lord? If we'll be honest about that question, um, that's, that actually becomes maybe the harder question than the first one. Because there are people we love a whole lot in this world, right? Properly that we love a whole lot. God has given them to us to love. In fact, he's surrounded us with a whole bunch of people we are to love. There are people we love more than we can imagine loving anybody else. Do I love them more than I love Christ? That, that's a penetrating question. Or the third, again, if we sort of take the third meaning of that, do we, do we love him more than these things? Like Peter, the, the, the nets and the fish and just vocational kind of things. Are there other interests? Are there other things I love more than I love him? My job or career, possessions. Um, recreation and entertainment the next vacation or trip away or whatever the case may be are there other interests that I love more than him well I hope what's true of you because again I know it's true of me and it would be awkward if I'm standing up here and admitting it and uh, and, and I'm the only one with an insufficient love for Christ but I know what's true of me time and time again is that there are other things other people that i love too much that they get hold of too much of my heart and it doesn't take much to do it that my 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 heart and yours are inclined that way just naturally to love inordinately things of this world and they draw so they draw our hearts away From him. If you begin to love the things of the world. And again it doesn't matter whether it's things as in possessions or work, money, people, whatever. If we we begin to love things of, of the world. They will demand more and more love from you. If you begin to love the things of the world. They will demand more and more love from you. Like uh, that that unhealthy sort of relationship that some know of and some have been in perhaps even right here, like a a controlling boyfriend or girlfriend perhaps, or a controlling spouse even, who at, at first, when you first meet the person and start dating, it's all wonderful and giggles and laughs and so forth, and then the longer you're together, the more he demands of you, and... And, and just of, of your life. So you, you spend less and less time with your friends. And to the point where you're not spending any time with them at all. You're not seeing your family much. And then before long, you're not even really talking to your family. Cut off entirely. Yeah, some of you know the, the kind of experience better than... Uh, than I do on a personal level and, and more than you wish were true, perhaps. But I'm using that just as a sort of metaphor to say it's an unhealthy kind of love relationship that demands more and more of us. And, and when your heart begins to love things of the world that really get attached to things of the world, those things will demand more and more of your heart. They, they will draw your heart away from your love for the Lord. And it's why Jesus said, for instance, you cannot love God and money. Right? Because you can't have two masters. And God certainly demands to be your master, and money will make that demand. And money and every other earthly thing. That's why he, he makes that sort of claim. I was reading back over with this, with this in mind about just sort of this, this inclination of our heart um, To love things of this world and the difficulty our heart has loving God and uh, his kingdom and eternal life with him and so forth. I was thumbed back through a quote from out of uh, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion and he said, The mind is never seriously aroused to desire and ponder the life to come unless it be previously imbued with contempt for the present life. Now, he's, of course, he, he actually wrote this in another language. The translation is a bit old, and so the language may sound a little archaic. But the, 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 the mind is never seriously aroused to desire the life to come unless the mind is first imbued with contempt for the present life. Indeed, he says, there is no middle ground between these two. Either the world must become worthless to us or hold us bound by intemperate love for it. Now, he does go on to say that he doesn't mean by contempt for the world a hatred or ingratitude. In fact, both of those would be sinful because God has given us lots of good things to enjoy, right? So he doesn't mean that we, that we hate it, despise it, or, uh, or that we're unthankful for it. But that if we don't consider them nothing to hold on to, if, if, our, if our heart isn't always willing and ready to let go of Anything on this earth, uh, then our heart is bound by an intemperate love for it. I remember reading uh, this for the first time 15 or 20 years ago and thinking, he's really overstated the case there. To say that there's no middle ground between the two, you know, that uh, you, you, you either are going to have to consider uh, worldly things worthless or be bound by an intemperate love for it, I thought, hey, you're just a bit of an exaggeration, isn't there, Dr. Calvin? And the longer I have lived and the longer I have walked with the Lord and attempted to walk with the Lord and stumbled in my walk with the Lord, the more I know of my own wayward heart prone to wander, the more I know that is true. If there's anything, if there's anything in the world that, that gets a hold of my heart, It'll demand an intemperate love for it. And when I discover it, I have to, I have to begin the exercise of, uh, of loving that thing less and loving him more. That, but we always have, we confronted with this question, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? We always will find that we have an insufficient love for him. I, I almost hesitated to use the word insufficient. It's certainly un, imperfect. But it is by itself insufficient. And um, it's never an unfailing love. I've maybe confessed before. I, again, this is really, this is my thing. It doesn't have to be everybody's thing. But I know there are times when, uh, when singing about or praying about, Lord, how much I love you. You're all that I want. And like, I know it's not true. I know that, you follow what I'm saying? Like, I know that's not always true. I wish it were more true more often than it is. But I sometimes get uncomfortable with, with, it, with it coming out of my mouth because I know I'm always challenged by an insufficient love for Him. The good news, though, is the second point that His grace toward us is all sufficient. His grace toward us is all sufficient. I think the, the, the reason this passage is either usually headed in modern translations under the heading of the love question or something to deal with this, this question Jesus asked him about love. The other one is his restoration of Peter. And the reason that is that it's regarded as a restoration is because, again, this conversation comes as the first substantive, meaningful Exchange between Jesus and Peter, since Peter's denial of him, three times. And you probably noticed, and again you've heard uh, this said before, that Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? uh, Peter answered three times, Yes. Even though the third time, it says he was grieved that he asked a third time, and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So do you ever find yourself at that place in, in your own prayer like, Lord, you know all things. And that's the good news and the bad news. Because you know how much I love you and you know how much I don't love you. But Jesus asked him three times. Peter answers three times, yes. And three times, Jesus commanded Peter, or commissioned him, to take care of his sheep. Each time, you notice that, right? Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So after denying Jesus three times, uh, Peter was given the opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus three times. Jesus put the, uh, he, didn't, he didn't put the words in his mouth, so to speak. I mean, they're Peter's own words, but, but he really sort of drew out of his mouth. He prompted him to say three times, yes, Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you. And, and Jesus says to him three times, take care of my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Yes, I know you love me even though it's insufficient. And no, you are not disqualified. From being an apostle or even the leader among the apostles. And not too many days later, he'll preach that sermon on Pentecost. When 3,000 come to know the Lord. And the world was turned upside down and the world has never been the same. But that begins with this gracious restoration of Peter to that place of ministry by Jesus. Again, signaled by his, th- this is just so, again, such a sweet and precious little gesture, easy enough to miss. But that he gives him that opportunity to affirm his love as many times as he denied Jesus. His grace is sufficient to cover whatever depth of failure or weakness or sin, folly. Whatever depth of a gap is left by our own doing, His grace is always sufficient to fill it up. I thought of this metaphor and... uh, it's, it's a little of, of an unusual one, I suppose. And there's probably a better one for sure. But my mind often, as a, uh, as, a, as a teacher, my mind often thinks in terms of illustrations and pictures and metaphor. But I think about the way the tank in the back of your toilet fills up every time you flush it. <laughs> and I suppose my, uh, my sinful heart is appropriately compared to a toilet sometimes. That's probably not too bad of an analogy. But I think about how, you know, the, the way that the way that works, you flush it, it empties of water, and there's that little float back there. If you've ever, uh, most, many of you have seen it. If you, if you haven't seen it, then you should thank God that you've never had to open the back of that toilet and try to figure out how it works. But anyway, there's this float that, um, that, that it gets, so low, the water level drops so low, it opens a valve, water turns on, and it begins to fill it back up. And it's, it's always sufficient to fill up exactly however much had emptied out, right? That's the way the whole mechanism works. However much was emptied, there's always that much water to fill it back up. And again, a crude picture for sure, but a picture that would illustrate The sufficiency of the grace of Jesus Christ always to fill whatever is lacking because of our own doing, our own insufficiency, our own failure once again. Same old thing, Lord, how did I get here again? That sort of story. Even then, when you think, surely God is tired of hearing me say, I'm sorry for the same old thing. Maybe I become so conscious of that, I, I don't even say I'm sorry anymore. I just feel like that just feels inauthentic or hypocritical or whatever to even even confess it or apologize for it. Why should I, why should I expect that anymore? Because His grace is all sufficient, that's why you should expect it. Because that's exactly the way it works. If if Peter had denied uh, Jesus seven times, he would have given him seven opportunities to say, I love you. Yes, I love you. And surely you and I have sinned and failed and faltered more than three times and more than seven and more than 70 times seven. And his grace is always sufficient. And there are probably some here today who are right in that place of, 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 of struggling through that reality. That you have sort of gone astray. And as far as the average onlooker knows, you're still in relationship with the Lord. But you're, you know the relationship isn't healthy. And again, because of, of your own doing. You're, you're right in that place of needing to experience that all-sufficient grace of Christ and a restored relationship with Him. Again, there may be some today who have never, uh, for that very initial time, entered into relationship with, with God and known the forgiveness that's available to them through Jesus. And so my prayer for any and all here is that as we conclude, as we pray, and as we respond to Him in worship and in prayer, um, that we would just receive... What he has for us today, the all-sufficiency of his grace toward us that would restore us to relationship that would restore us to service to him and would restore to us the joy of his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever Thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning and and we, we know it all too well. We thank you that we know it so well. Lord, I do pray that by your spirit, you would minister to, speak to, move the hearts of people even right now. God, I pray that this, in these moments that follow, that this would be a moment of of restoration for people who would just say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Yes, I love you. Even knowing how insufficient our love is. God, I pray that you would bring many just to a, a new day, a new season, a fresh new start with you and restore the joy of your salvation toward them. Have your way, Lord, right now, in Christ's name. Amen.